And I want to read some thoughts that I wrote down in preparation for this message so that you would be able to hear what's on my heart. Some of us here today, or listening to my voice in various media, have willingly been involved in activity that we know full well that is sinful. We have fought against God and either pushed Him out or tried to slide it by Him just to get what we want. We have loved our sin more than God. And I know that because I struggle as well. We are all in the same boat here. There are no super saints. There are merely those that trust in Jesus Christ and those that have not yet. Let me be very clear on something so that we don't create a division between the pulpit and the congregation. If you were to follow me around in my life with cameras and I had a reality show, you would probably see that, well, for some of you that are super conservative, you'd probably go, eee. Now, the rest of you would probably go, ah, it's pretty beaver cleaver, right? With kind of a psycho edge to it, right? Right? <laughs> I'm not entirely normal. But you would kind of see how I treat my wife, and you'd see how I treat my kids, and you'd see how I interact in relationships, and kind of how I spend my time, and you'd kind of go, all right, I get it, I'll sign off on that guy being pastor, all right, sure. But if I was to display my thought life, my underground life, the stuff that you cannot see with cameras on these screens, I would not work here anymore. Because... Although some of you would say, I understand, it's always harder to see someone else's struggles because you can justify your own. But as you see these types of things that rage through my heart and my head, as you see the things that go on that are temptations or things to fight or wrestle with, you would be horrified. We are all wrestling through this life and trying to sort out what it means to be a follower of Christ. I am no different. But God is different than that. I believe that if we were all honest, we would probably say the very same about our lives. But God is different. God is a God of glory and perfection. He is the one who created all things, who is perfect in every way. He is the one who is ultimately fair and compassionate. He is the one that saved us. He is the one that loves us enough to have the Son of God die on the cross for us. He is the mightiest warrior of all heaven and earth, the uncreated, all-existent being subject to none. He is the sweet kindness of mercy and grace. He is the strength beyond all the universe, yet he lowers himself to sit on the porch with us after a bad day at school. So the question then is this, what have we become? There are many of us who know the goodness of God. We know how loving he is. We know the joy of living free. We know what he wants from us and we know what makes him proud. So why do we live like we do? 
Sin can be seen in two different perspectives. There's the perspective of earth, the one that we see every day. That perspective is this, we do bad things. We hear too often the idea of bad things happen to good people, but there are no good people. Do not allow any pride or lies to enter into your mind that you are indeed a good person. You're not. You do what is advantageous to you. So do I. And when we sin, when we violate that which is God's nature, we hurt people. That is the fact. It sends a ripple effect out into the universe and people that we didn't even know we hurt, hurt. As we look at that, we appear to be monsters. To do any ultimate introspection for some of us is just too difficult. Because we're ashamed at what we see. In that sin perspective, it's rough. There is another perspective, the perspective of heaven. The perspective of heaven is this. If you are a child of God, which means you have fallen at the foot of the cross and allowed the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sins, that you have surrendered to Jesus, made Him Lord of your life, and allowed Him to unite with you that all that is His is yours, it looks very different to the Father. He looks down upon us and He sees His Son. He sees the very reflection or image of Himself and He sees us as holy, righteous, and pure. Our standing before God because of Jesus Christ is purity. But make no mistake, sin matters. It disrupts relationships. It hurts people. So how is it that we can be clean by Jesus... While we live like sinners, the answer to that is it's only by His mercy. What we're going to look at is Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is special. We know it. Most of us that have been in the church for any length of time have read this numerous times. There's worship songs created from it. And we look at it and we go, oh, I know that one. But it's special not only because David wrote it, but it's largely special because of when he wrote it and why he wrote it. The title to Psalm 51 that was added later to clarify is this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now maybe we could ask Jake this, since most of us don't write worship songs, but when's the last time you wrote a worship song about one of your greatest failures for the church to sing over and over and over again? The Psalms are a hymn book. They are what the church would sing all the time. Let's sing about the process by which I was most humiliated and fell down before God where only He could restore me. Let's sing that a lot. It is believed that as it picked up and went through the church, the last two verses were added in because Israel realized it's not just David that has this story, but it's all of us. 
And they added in some national concepts. But the reason this story is such a big deal is because it's poetic about a real situation. Poetry is a very specific genre of scripture. And I'm going to tell you a couple rules in a moment about how to read poetry. But one of the main things you need to understand about poetry is it's emotional. If you're not engaging emotionally, you're not reading it appropriately. It's not narrative, it's not a story, it's not logical, it's not just frameworked like an epistle. It's emotional. But you can't understand the emotion behind this psalm unless you know the story. We are but six weeks out from studying this story together as a church through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. However, you've got to know the story. Let me recap it for you. Here's how it goes. Israel is out on another one of their many wars. And Joab, the leader and commander of the Israeli army, is out fighting the bad guys. David's mighty men are out fighting the bad guys. And David has always been a warrior. He's been a king for quite a while now. And so he decides to take a season off. They fight every year. So he takes a break and hangs out in his palace. He has the tallest house. So as he's walking out... He looks down and sees a gal bathing. He pauses on that one, notices that she's incredibly beautiful, goes back inside to his messengers and says, hey, anybody know who that gal is over there? And they said, yeah, absolutely. That's Uriah's girl. Uriah? My bodyguard Uriah? Yeah. The guy, I mean, that guy's covered your back a million times. He's one of your mighty men. You know him really well. Really? Hey, can you invite her over? Even knowing what he knows, he invites her over, he sleeps with her, she goes back home and David thinks, well that worked out well. Then he gets that note, I'm pregnant. Now some of you have lived this story, you know exactly how that feels. Ladies, you know the idea that what your parents said was true, it only takes one time. You've lived it. You know the whole, what do I do now? This is not at all what I planned. When David receives that, now it's, oh no, I better do something so he can cock some plans. First, he decides to bring Uriah back and say, hey man, you've done great on the battlefield, why don't you go home? Because if he hooks up with his wife, then hey, maybe it's Uriah's kid. It looks like David, but maybe it's Uriah's kid. Doesn't work. David even gets him hammered, drunk. He won't go home. He stays on David's doorstep because his men are out in the field, and if his men are uncomfortable, there's no way he's going to be comfortable. He says, what kind of man do you think I am? That great man. David then sends back to the battlefield with a note, Joab, my commander, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go into the heaviest fighting. I need to send a crew up, an elite force that has Uriah in it, and make a call when the artillery starts firing in. I want you to pull everybody back and let Uriah die. Well, that's exactly what happens. He kills his buddy to get his, life, his wife. Sure enough, Uriah's dead. She publicly laments. She comes in, becomes his wife, and they have a child. Nathan, the prophet, comes up to David and says, I got a story for you. Okay, what's the story? Well, it's something that happened in your kingdom. Well, is this like a real story or like a fake story? doesn't matter. Anyway, there's a super rich guy and a super poor guy. The super poor guy has got nothing. 
He's got one little lamb. Now, he can't afford a bunch of flocks and everything, so when you have one little lamb, everybody gets attached to it. So the kids put a collar on it, and they call it by name, and it's frolicking around the house, right? And they got a little lamb bed and a little, like, lamb, I don't know, litter box. I don't know what, it, what, what you would do. <laughs> Uh, and the kids just love it. Well, anyway, he works for a super rich guy, and the super rich guy has like thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle and everything else. He's really, really wealthy. So anyway, a guy comes in that's super important, and he wants to throw him a feast. So the rich guy looks out and goes, well, I don't want to use my stuff. Why don't I just take the poor guy's lamb, and he slaughters it and serves it up for a meal. David goes ballistic. David can't handle injustice. How dare he do something like that and explodes. It's, this man should be held accountable and there should be fourfold cost and blah, 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 blah. And Nathan goes, it's you, man. Really, you got all this? We're walking around in your palace. You have a harem. And you steal Uriah's wife. It's all he has. He works his tail off for you. And you are greedy enough to go out and grab whatever you want. God has said that you are cursed now. David falls apart. I can't believe this is happening. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. Blah, blah. Falls apart, right? Nathan said, he's heard your prayers. You're not going to die. But there are consequences, my friend. Consequences are this. A curse is upon your house. A sword will never depart from your house. Turmoil will never stop until you die. Your kids will fall apart on you. They'll attack you. They'll take your throne. It's just going to be na- nasty. Number two, all your wives will be stolen at some point and they will be publicly dishonored in daylight. I don't know what else God has in plan, but I'm out. He steps out. A week or so later, his son goes sick. Oh no, this isn't related, is it? He prays and prays and prays. God, don't let my child die. The child dies. I'm going to suggest that when David was involved with Bathsheba that first night, I don't think he had any of this in store. I don't think he had any idea the ramifications of his choice. Now we have Uriah dead. We have a series of other men that were killed because they pushed too close to the wall. We have a child dead, and we have a mourning wife who now is all twisted. All of that, and we have a messed up king now. All of that because of some choices. All right. God puts him through the press, the refiner's fire. And through that process, David writes a song. And that's the song we're about to read. So in order to read this, let's go ahead and throw up the first portion of it. In order to read this, we have to have a couple ideas on what poetry is and how to read it. So let's have a little bit of fun with this before we begin The first thing that you need to realize that David likes to do is called doubling a statement to make a point. Um, When you read poetry, some of us Bible nerds overanalyze it. Please don't do that. What we do is we say it it has two statements and we go, ooh, why did he say it twice? Maybe it meant this. In poetry, you can say two statements to make one point. Don't overanalyze it. Let me give you an example. Let's say we're writing a love poem, right? All of us together. This is fun, right? I don't know who you're writing it to, right? But let's say we wrote this. Love me like it's our last night together. Hold my heart like it's soon over. All I'm making is one point. The point is, we don't have a long time, so let's hang on together. That's the idea. It's not that you analyze both sides. It's one point. 
Second thing that poetry does is it exaggerates. If you're a brainiac, that's called hyperbole. It means exaggeration. Poems exaggerate. So you don't try to make it literal. You don't try to dive in and force a meaning into it. For example, in our love poem, we said something like this. Your love is like a hurricane of explosive grandeur and showering ecstasy. What? It means your love is awesome, okay? Do we really need to overanalyze this thing? Can we not just go, neato? The other thing that poets like to do, and David does this a lot, is he said, this is like this. Now, he did not say this is this. It means there's some similarities, and that's where it stops. Don't push it, right? Let's go back to our love poem. Your lips are like the sweetest and richest confectionery the world has ever known. All right. Now, that is syrupy, right? Now, if you take that too far, you've got to rip her lips off and chew on them for a while because that's what candy is. Okay, are we all clear? Can we just let a poem be a poem? It means sweet. All right. Let's take a look at the poem. Have mercy on me, O God. Mercy, by definition, means undeserved favor undeserved kindness you cannot say the word mercy if it's deserved it doesn't fit anytime mercy is ever utilized it always means undeserved you cannot even begin this phrase until god's bigger than you are that's why it says god will resist the proud but he will give grace to the humble the healthy don't need a doctor it's the sick Until you know that you don't deserve for God to forgive you, we haven't even begun to enter into the realm of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The according to statements is going back and saying, God, I know your nature. I know that this is what you're like. This is how you normally act. You are a God of steadfast love, immovable love, that even when we're all yahoos and we're all being disloyal and unfaithful to you, you are still consistent and constant with your incredible love. When you dole out mercy, God, it's not just a tiny bit to cover the top. It's an abundance. According to your nature, blot out my transgressions. Blot out means erase the records of, delete. No more records anywhere of what? My transgressions. Transgressions can also be uh, uh, translated trespasses. Anybody memorize the Lord's Prayer in King James? Right? It's always, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, nobody ever uses that word anymore except for on the sign on the fence. Yeah? Yeah? It's the only time trespass is used. And that's why it means don't cross the line or you are a trespasser. Does that make sense? Very simple. God, erase the records of where I've crossed the line. Wash me like a stained garment. Get in there and work the stain out. Bleach me. Wash me thoroughly from my gross insides, my stained self. My iniquity. 
Cleanse me ceremonially that I might be clean to go to temple, that I might be clean to stand before the Lord. Cleanse me from that which I have wronged you. For I know where I've crossed the line. My sin is always in front of me. God, no matter where I go, I know how broken I am. If I'm honest with myself, I'm constantly, I look one direction, I try to be super Christian guy. I go to church, I do this, I do that. And every time I turn around, there's sin. I try to go out and have the best motives and somehow it gets mixed and then somehow there's a problem and what is wrong with me? God, I'm very clear that my sin is always in front of me. I know it. But to be honest, Father, against you, you only have I sinned. What does that mean? Haven't we also sinned against other people? When David sinned, did he not sin against Uriah as well? Certainly he did. Then why does he say only against you have I sinned? Because all sin is ultimately against God. Why? Because remember, he's the one the story is all about. Let me use an example that may make it obvious. Let's say that you don't like me and you come in and smash my windshield. I'm not suggesting you do that. An email would be fine. But let's say you bash in my windshield. Now, it would be very silly for you to go up and apologize later on when we reconcile, when you apologize to my car. If you went up to my car and said, hey, I, I drive a Honda Accord, right? So you go up to the Honda Accord and you go, hey, I have nothing against Accords. You know what? I, I, I smashed your window. It was really about Lance, honestly. And you're sitting having a dialogue with my car. And you're saying, you know what? I've smashed a lot of windshields. It's not just you. You know, and I'm sure that you're economical. It doesn't mean anything about your nature. And I just want you to... Okay, why are you apologizing to my car? It's my car. Talk to me. Don't apologize to my car. So the idea is, is that when we sin against any of God's creation, we are God's stuff. When you sin against that, you're ultimately sinning against the owner. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So honestly, God, you're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment of me. Yeah, I'm a bad guy. Slide to the next one. Behold, take a consideration of this. Father, I was brought forth in sin. Uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. There's never been a time, God, when I was a good guy. I mean, not only did I inherit the sin from Adam and Eve, our forefathers, our parents who have reproduced sin nature all the way through. We are reproductions of a marred human being. Not only was I born in that, but the moment I got to choose, I've been sinning ever since I can remember. That God, there's never been a time when I did it all right. Behold, consider this. God, you delight in truth in the inward being. I don't need to change my mask, God. I don't need to change my outsides, God. I need to re-rack inside. You delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, purge me with hyssop. What's hyssop? It's a plant. How do you purge somebody with a plant? Well, if you remember the story of the original Passover, when the angel of death was coming across Israel, and they had to put blood on the door frames for the angel of death to pass over, that was put on with hyssop. You dip it in the blood, and you paint it over the top of your door frame. That same plant was used in the ceremonial areas of the temple to flick blood or sprinkle blood for cleansing because there is no cleansing without shed blood. God, sprinkle me with the blood that I might be clean. 
purge me with hyssop, God, because if you do it, I will be clean. If you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again, God, because what I've done is now captured me and destroyed me. And now I'm locked into Satan's second trap. The first trap Satan has about our sin is that it convinces us it's no big deal. In my personality, I'm more likely caught in the first trap. I could justify all my sin. I can, as a nice guy, I don't do any sins that hurt anybody. Right? And I can constantly play that game over and over in my mind. Other personalities fall into Satan's second trap, which is you will look at your sin and become so horrified with your sin and so locked in shame that you're a puddle on the ground and no good to anybody because you never will stand up again because no one could ever forgive a wretch like me. Oh God, let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Make no mistake. A good father addresses the sins of his children. If necessary, bones will be broken. That they would be reset and the lesson would be learned. How do we wrestle with this idea of a loving father in discipline? Well, I was wrestling through that before the service last night. And I felt like God said, I don't know, Lance, how do you deal with your kids? Thought about that. Because we really get tripped up on sin, how God deals with sin. We, we slide to one side of the pendulum or the other. On one side, we say, God doesn't care about it because Jesus died for it, so it's cool. And on the other side, we see God's wrath, and if I do anything wrong, I'm now cast into the pits of hell, and, right? He said, hold up, hold up. Do you not model this in your kids? Let me give you an example. Let's say my daughter steals a pack of gum. Right? I've used this analogy before. Let's say one of my children, one of my daughters steals a pack of gum. That does not rock my world ultimately. Okay, I, It's not going to break me. If i got to go pay for the gum, and if I march her down there and have her talk to the person that she stole it from and return it, and that's cool, I even can pay something to say, hey, I'm so sorry that we caused you an inconvenience, that's not ultimately going to rock my world. i got bigger fish to fry. But how am I going to act when it gets towards her? Oh, it's all coming down on her, right? What do you think you're doing? What, you think you can just steal something and get away with that? Now all of a sudden it seems like the whole world focused right on her. And from her perspective, the wrath has come. Yeah? And I'm going to go in on it and talk about it. And you realize that now it's gum. You know what? This, God, this, this whole attitude, not only is it not okay to steal gum, it's not okay to steal anything. And the discipline comes in and it's all severe and I'm being the dad and all this stuff, right? Well, imagine that incident finishes going down, and she's crying, and, and she's repentant. And, and then I sit across the table at Starbucks with you, having coffee. And you looked over to me, and you go, so she's done, right? Done, what do you mean, done? Well, she's out. She's out of the family. Dude, she stole something. <laughs> what? Well, you're not going to let her still be a Han, right? I mean, that's embarrassing. I mean, do you understand? Like, that's your name, dude. I mean, that's, so, I mean, I know you guys are moving, like, over to Europe or something, you know, which isn't true, this is all fake. Let's say, and you're moving over to Europe, so you're just going to leave her here, right? What, why would I do that? Dude, she sinned. Yeah. Do you understand the balance? When I go to Europe, in my imaginary world, my children are going with me. 
don't care what kind of sinners they are. They're my kids. I'm not leaving them here. I'm not going to have them be with me. That's what happens. And yes, I'm going to bring in discipline and do all that stuff. That doesn't change my love for my children. That doesn't change the outcome that we're going to be together forever. That doesn't shift any of that. So do you understand sin still matters? But let's keep it in perspective. Make sense? Let's go to the next slide. God, hide your face from my sins. Don't look at them. When you look at them, it feels like they're real and they're still there. But God, if you have forgiven them, turn your face away from them. Look aside and they disappear. Blot out. Remove all record of my iniquities. Create in me, and this is where it gets into that, that worship song. And I believe we sang the worship song at when we were Roseville Hope early on, and I had to pull it for theological reasons. It's completely bogus to sing today. It's a great song. The problem is it's theologically incorrect. I'll explain why here in a moment. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Make your divine nature rupture up within me. Renew me into being more like you, God. Clean me up. Take away that garbage. Clean me and renew a right spirit within me. Last night I pronounced it right. <laughs> renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's where it bombs. Okay, that's only Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon for a task, like with Saul the king. But remember, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. David was saying, don't take away my calling as a king. He's not referring to the indwelling Holy Spirit. That didn't happen until Pentecost. All right? What, a uh, thousand years later? Okay, so it doesn't apply today, because now the phrase indwelling is used. So that's why we cannot sing that song anymore. All right. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Father, I need to know again how wonderful it is to be saved. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to teach other people like me what it means to be restored. And sinners will return to you, Father. Go to the next one. Deliver me from your blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And if so, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, you have to open my lips because my jaw is clenched shut in shame. But if you open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You wouldn't be pleased with a burnt offering. God, it's not like I have to do penance. Penance means do good things to offset the bad things. That's a bogus concept. It's not accurate. It's not biblical. You can never make up for the sin to an infinite God. It's either the blood of Jesus or nothing. It's not like God goes, well, now you've got to do these really cool things and then we're square. He said, none of that stuff has any value when my heart is wrong. So I've got to get my heart right and then I can go back into living with you like I want to. For the sacrifices of God, what you really want are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. These last two verses were added in likely later. But do good to Zion, the area of Jerusalem, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then, when we're right again, you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then, when we are your people aligned with you, bulls will be offered on your altar. What have we become? Is David alone? Hey, Jake, why don't you come on up here? What have we become? We know 
who God is. We know what God wants. And we still choose other. Why? I've been asking my quest, that question in my own heart for years. And it seems that when I move out one thing, something else slides in. It's that the gods of my life that I allow in there, the idols of my life, if I don't have one, I pick up another. Why can't I serve God alone? Why is He not enough for me? Why do we continue to make the choices that we do knowing that He is our everything? Is it because we don't believe that He's ever going to take care of that one need? Is it because we don't believe that it's important to Him? Is it because we believe that the need that we have is improper and so God would never fill something like that? I'll never forget when Cy Rogers was here, he used a phrase that has echoed in my head over and over and over, and that was, God, give me better bread. That I may not long for the bread of the world, but show me a different way to live. That I long for your bread, God, and not clamor for what the world offers. If you need some time, and I'm going to give you some quiet time, then I'm going to close this in prayer. If you need to talk with God over some choices that you're making, I don't know a better time than this. David has displayed his life in front of us. I've talked about how you and I are on the same page. There's nobody different here in this room. In this place of vulnerability, talk to God just for a minute. Let's just listen to Jake play and just play and just pray. Heavenly Father, we are sorry. We are sorry for what we have allowed and encouraged in our lives that are sinful. Father, the thoughts that we have against other people, the cheating shortcuts, in our lives. 
the cramming of our lives with things of the world to make us feel better. The opening up the door and inviting idols to have our heart. We are an adulterous generation, spiritually. And we ask right now, Father, that that you would cleanse us and renew a right spirit within us. We ask, Lord, that you would take that which is broken and continue to renew. That you have given us a great and precious promise that if you've began a good work in us, that you, the author and perfecter of our faith, will carry it on to completion. Some of us, Father, need a broken and contrite heart. Lead us to repentance. Others of us, Lord, need to stand up from the shame and degradation and understand the forgiveness of God. Meet us where we're at. Transform our lives today. And let us leave this place different than when we arrived. Heal us today. And we tell you again, we are sorry. And that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.